0: The Class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit from West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the Class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the War on Terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, These are the stories of those graduates as we look through the gray.
1: The views expressed by Commander Gibbs are solely his own in his private capacity and do not in any way represent the views of the U.S. Naval Academy, the U.S. Navy, or the Department of Defense. Thank you very much. Through the Gray has its first sponsor. Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Jonathan Gibbs. John went to West Point for leadership and saw his passion for academics, engineering, and tight-knit teams pull him towards the sea. John excelled at submarines, but high stresses and cramped conditions caused him to explore a new career path in naval salvage and recovery. Along the way, John earned a world-class education in business management, naval, nuclear, and mechanical engineering. John now teaches naval and marine engineering full-time at the United States Naval Academy. This is his story. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're with John Gibbs. How you doing today, John?
0: I'm doing great, Joe. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. On. No
1: problem. So, first question: Why West Point?
0: You know, I've listened to enough of these podcasts that I thought I would be prepared when you were going to ask me that. Uh, but you know, it's it's interesting because looking back as a high schooler, I really didn't really know very much about what it was like to be a leader. You know, uh, maybe none of us really had that fully well formed. And, you know, that the leadership development that we'd get at West Point would be the draw. For me, it was, you know, I was a pretty impressionable kid in middle school and high school. You know, we had uh, briefings with Colin Powell in the Gulf War, and I was kind of, like, glued to that. And then uh, in high school, I remember they made Killer Angels into the Gettysburg movie. And I I said, wow, there's a real historical connection there with what West Point grads have done way, way back, and... You know, that really piqued my interest. Uh, it's kind of funny that the first thing that popped up on my radar was probably a brochure from Air Force. Uh, and I said, yeah, sure, send that back. Give me a little bit more information. And, of course, I got on all the uh, the admissions network. Uh, you know, they all talk to each other. And so I got flooded with, like, oh, there's a Naval Academy event in your area. Um, so, you know, kind of peeled back the the onion a little bit. Went to a few things uh, as a high schooler and started to see, like, you know, this this is really... Not, you know, no family background in the military, very different again than what maybe I was thinking about doing uh, in California, thinking about going to UC, uh, you know, one of the UC schools. And I just kept pulling back the layers and thinking, you know, maybe there's a fit here. And, you know, talking to some really outstanding uh, cadets on their hometown visits and just being really, really floored. Uh, so when I was a high schooler in my senior year, I want to say it was February. February. I got my conditional offer and uh, got a chance to come out for the overnight visit. I was, I was ready to sign away, you know, you tell me where to sign uh, all my paperwork and I was just floored by what I saw in just a day and a night in the, in the brigade. Uh, things didn't actually work out that way. Uh, funny, funny of all, uh, so, so uh, horror stories of the dodd Merb and the medical review board. Uh, they, they caught me up on a, on a skin rash. So I, I did not get a medical waiver, uh, out of high school to come to West Point. Uh, even though I had everything else, all, you know, all the other T's crossed and the I's dotted. So I, I, I actually got an offer to come to Navy and that all came together. And I said, wow, that's interesting. And I got my offer in like May and they're like, we need your answer. I'm like, well, I've never been there. And so, uh, I came to Navy um it was actually during like the run up to term ends i think what they're they call you know they call their finals and uh i just got a very different vibe from the place and so i i kind of as a as a high schooler said thanks but no thanks to navy as much as i you know was really floored by coming to west point and i said you know what i i think i'll just take a year to go to uc berkeley and see how that goes uh i guess i didn't really expect it to work out but i while i was at uc berkeley i reapplied and saw some Air Force dermatologist and he uttered the magic words of, you must have been misdiagnosed as a kid. And that was enough for me to get a, a medical waiver to come to West Point. So it's a roundabout way of saying how I got there without really answering the question for why. But I really wanted to serve. I think I was pretty influenced by my dad. In the He, <laughs> he worked uh, as a sales executive in the toy industry. And every year, he would go out to New York to Toy Fair, and he would tell me, like, we're going to place the bets, and we don't know what's going to be the next new hot toy, and maybe none of it is. And I was just, I I think that's where my thoughts about public service really kind of crystallized. And I'm like, I don't think that's for me. I don't think, you know, it's a little bit of flim flam and smoke and mirrors, and you don't know what's going to work out. And I'm like, I think I'm I'm thinking of something more steady than that, where I can make an impact um, at at the outset. So, yeah, it was kind of funny because I, I didn't affiliate with ROTC at, uh, at UC Berkeley. So I, I think it was kind of like a package deal for me of come to West Point to be an officer, not, um, you know, I want to be an officer, so get myself to West Point, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a roundabout way of thinking about it, I guess.
1: Now, your year at UC Berkeley, um, did you question whether or not you, you still wanted to go to West Point?
0: Not really, uh, really, it was a question of if I could get there. Yeah, so, so um, yeah, you know, as you'll see in my career, and maybe this is a theme, you know, like, I've told a lot of folks, like, make, make people tell you no, and probably at least twice. Uh, and I said, well, if it's something as stupid as like, this medical waiver didn't come through, but this is really what my heart's desire was, was to go be a, uh, a West Point uh, cadet and then graduate then just reapply. Just do it again. You know, put yourself out there one more time and give it another shot. But no, I I, I mean, I enjoyed my time at Cal. I was a marginal Mecchi e student. Uh, I was a number in a 700-person auditorium for a history class, right? So it was a very different experience. I did not particularly respond well to it. I mean, I did okay, but I didn't even, by the time I got my, uh, my medical waiver to come through, I didn't even have a 3.0 when I left. And so the good news is that that put a nice big chip on my shoulder, you know, like, okay, I didn't really make the most of that opportunity and also, um, really responded to the format, the delivery, the class size and the professional mentoring as a cadet at West Point from the, from the faculty. And, uh, and that really lit up my synapses to do well academically and, and, you know, that. I think made a huge difference in how things ended up turning out.
1: And So you, you come into West Point um, the summer of 97. What was the experience of Beast?
0: Uh, so it's funny because I thought, I mean, I was I was not super Joe PT, right? Like not to use Joe in derogative, right? Uh, sorry, present company excluded, right? Uh <laughs> But I did fine, you know, that was fine. I wasn't great, but I was okay. I was definitely not, like, back of the pack for any of that. And that, for me, was the hardest part. And I thought that, like, you know, the the rigmarole monkey games of, like, what's my name and do your stuff and shine your shoes and all that, I thought was very straightforward from the fact that they told me exactly what I was supposed to do. And maybe they didn't quite give me all the time I would have liked to do it, but, you know expectations were crystal clear and I definitely thrived in that environment so actually I thought I was you know a hot shot plebe from like beast barracks on and then you know kind of when that no longer became the currency of like okay you're on time you're in a good uniform and your shoes are well shined like you know I probably didn't do as well in uh in those other areas of you know like the military performance like yep got military bearing down great got it um <laughs> but uh probably didn't grow as much as I could have as a cadet after that. But Beast Barracks was great uh, in that, you know, first time being in that environment with a, a tight-knit group in your squad and with, you know, Khan and the enemy, enemy of the cadre. Um, yeah, so I, I think I, you know, as much as one can enjoy Beast Barracks, I think I had a good summer. Um, and then, you know, the start of academic year as a plebe was, you know, kind of at least for the first couple weeks was just kind of a nightmare and a blur. Um, but then, when things kind of finally settled down in the academic year, I felt like it kind of really hit my
1: stride in plebe year. And as you get into the academic year, um, and you hit that stride, really, where did you find the areas that drew you? What what opportunities at West Point drew you uh, and gained your interest as you went along? All right. Well, so here's where I get to
0: advertise my first major regret, and if there's a takeaway from my cadet career. I was at best a two-dimensional cadet and that's probably being generous like uh I really enjoyed the time in the classroom I saw that that was like 55 percent of your cadet performance score and it's like okay I guess that's where I should focus and uh probably did not invest in not just okay I didn't do as much PT and you know kind of my physical performance wasn't you know on the right the best trend um but I there's so many other developmental opportunities and, and I don't know well how it is now, but I feel like looking back that I definitely did not make the most of those. Even just getting out with buddies more and taking trips more, you know, doing something to get off the yard or I keep saying yard, I'm here on the yard off post um, and experience, you know, the clubs and the activities. It took me until I think cow year, late cow year, before I realized, maybe it was even early first year, that there was was an extracurricular activity that all they did is drive you down to go see shows in Broadway. Like, that was the whole purpose of that club. And, (laughs) like, how did it take me this long to figure this out? This is such a great deal. And, like, being 60 miles or 60 minutes away from New York City? Are you kidding me? You know, and it didn't avail myself too much of that. Now that said, you know, my dad would come out to Toy Fair... And so I did have a few, uh, a few trips down to Manhattan and living on the largest of uh, his corporate expense account kind of thing, being a pretty moochy cadet. And that was great. But, you know, I, I, looking back, I think there were a lot of missed opportunities. That, like, yep, I did great in academics. I didn't do very much else, you know, um, I guess with the exception of doing honor committee stuff.
1: Talk yeah. me through that experience. So, um you know, I don't really have a lot of
0: recollection about, you know, the honor committee kind of chugging in the background. I I don't remember when I I don't remember if I was elected as a is it is I think it's early in the third class year that the third class elects their rep. And then of course we scrambled, right? So then I think there was another election when we got into our new companies. Um I don't really remember much from the first like year and a half there from like, you know, yearling year and half a cow year. Um but then I did go up to take one of the spots on the executive committee, and I, I was going to be a regimental honor rep. And then so that was really um, a big time commitment and interest of mine. And so the regimental honor rep job uh, kind of actually played to my strengths. It's, it's very administrative. Um, so a big piece of it was any investigation for a, a cadet that was in the regiment. You know, kind of the the fourth so this was second reg, um, as the, as a regiment honor, up, you know, I kind of own the process to get that case all the way through to final adjudication or, or, you know, separation or whatever it is. So I would be the one who assigns the company team that, um, does the investigation. I would be, you know, I'd review the investigation kind of write up a summary of here's what's, here's what's not in doubt. Here's what's in doubt. I do or don't think that this has enough merits that it could go to a board. Um, which I thought was a really, you know, that very different than the other academic work I've been doing in engineering. Um, and then, you know, tracking these cases through, sitting in on honor boards, and then uh, actually getting to see a fair amount of the back end of all of that with when this individual goes before the regimental tack, and then up to the commandant and then eventually uh, to the superintendent for, for final disposition. Um, I will say that that was the final, you know, I was a reasonably well-organized cadet, but... I did not really have like a calendar or anything that I was maintaining until I was in that job and I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to be in a meeting with an 07 or, um, or the soup, right? Like I should probably make sure I don't miss those meetings. So <laughs> it's, uh, I think in, in, uh, you know, Christmas of cow year, I think I got a palm pilot for my parents or maybe it was a birthday gift and I didn't really do anything with it until I started to have those meetings. I'm like, oh yeah, I really need to not miss these. So it was uh it was my early slave to the uh, digital calendar, and I've kind of stuck with that ever
1: since it's, but It was it's a great crazy. experience it's crazy yeah. how like when I was in high school, I could memorize the the TV shows for the week <laughs> and I then at some point the army forces me now to look at an outlet calendar to know what I'm doing before lunch today
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. it went a long way from being able to memorize you know a whole day's worth of me- uh menus and uh, spec it for the next day and all that. And, you know, it's funny, it's just, what do you actually reserve your mental energy for? And, uh, you know this, the scheduling of things on the calendar is, is quite useful for that. You know, I, yeah. it's a, uh, kind of, I don't need to worry about that. It's going to happen kind of stuff. So what were the,
1: yeah. the big takeaways you got out of, um, the process of being on the honor committee and, and, the way that we, the West point deals with honor, um, that as you go forward in your career, what stuck with you?
0: Yeah. So, you know, this was a, I, I don't remember when they first started doing remediation, but we were kind of in the middle of that transition, uh, that I think started several years before us, but, you know, it was still kind of like growing pains with the core cadets and, um, what it means to like not have an absolutist view on cadet honor offenses and it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around um we are perhaps more i don't know how i want to phrase this we like to think that our character is fixed and immutable and not subject to circumstance but i think i've been more and more convinced ever since and i think i saw the inklings of this as a as an honor rep guy that you know, uh, the circumstance really can drive a lot of human behavior. And that's, that's actually a really important thing to understand. Now, I never really had to see it where the stakes were high, but I can imagine army officers in combat situations where if you haven't spent time thinking about how we could rationalize what we're about to go do and do the wrong thing, that, like that's really important to spend time on at the front end uh, so that in that heat of the moment, It's not, well, like, oh, well, I did do this, and I'm a good person, so it must have been right kind of thing, which people can do and get themselves into, you know, kind of moral jeopardy pretty readily. And recognizing that and that there's still human potential in a lot of folks who mess that up, and I don't... You know, early at least as a cadet, I don't think I really appreciated that. I, I kind of was like, well, why aren't these people just gone um, for for really anything? Um, but I think I've come around a little bit more to understand that, it you know, it being a, a leadership development process and you're not fully formed and, uh, you know, what we expect of you as a graduate versus what we expect of you as a first class versus what we expect of you as, you know, starting out plebe, that that's all very different because of how much time you've had to be developed and how much time you've had to think about these things. So I I think it maybe started me off on the path of thinking a little bit more. You know, I was like super engineer, right? I was Mr. Engineer Academics and I was like, great. I just wanted to work with Twidgets. And you're like, yeah, but that's not really what you need leaders for. And the gray that's present in kind of human behavior and kind of Maybe in retrospect, right? I think I poo-pooed, you know, PL300 saying like, okay, the answer is always throw a barbecue for your platoon. And I think that was my takeaway (laughs) at the time. But like that stuff's actually super important and way harder than I give it credit. You know, I was always like, oh, thinking like that's all pseudoscience. But you know what? That stuff's really very powerful if 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 you delve into it, right? There's more ways to nudge the human behavior to do the right thing. Um, then we give ourselves credit for, you
1: know, this, I think like sometimes we we'll easily accept that you can build someone's tolerance to pain. Uh, and we can build someone's, um, physical attributes over time by pushing them further and further. Um, but we, we ignore the character and the moral attributes and, and asking people to, to put themselves in difficult situations. And then stop, pull back, reflect, and let them grow, and then do it again. Um, yeah, and
0: and the whole cadet experience should be a whole bunch of low stakes things where we kind of allow you to flail and fail a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, now, now we could we could quibble about you know like cheating on exam or you know lying to your attack officer or you know what's the level at which the consequence needs to be severe if not unrecoverable, right? But uh, like to to accept that there is a continuum there. Where we can use it as a developmental exercise, and that a, a cadet who goes through and invests in the remediation process really can come out, you know, the other side as a very different person and a, a potentially a, a much different officer than the person who you know never got caught for anything, was a little bit, you know, no, didn't have that developmental exercise. Um, I really believe that there's more to it than you know, let's fail high and right and you're just gone. that zero defect mentality I think
1: is really um, wasteful
0: of the human. Yeah. And that's very different than I thought, especially the first couple of years as as a cadet.
1: Especially when you consider that the amount of talent that walks in the door Um, and then the number of people who start out, either you struggle physically or they struggle with the academics and we can can help them on the right path. Uh, You don't want to forget that, again, Character-wise and morals-wise, we don't all come in at the same level.
0: It's very true. And, you know, I will take a hard work, you know, like I used to think like, well, I want the, you know, most academically gifted, clever people are like, not always making the best officers, you know? Uh, I don't know how long it took me to kind of figure that out, but some of the best officers I've ever worked with were, you know, they weren't, you know, they weren't academic rock stars necessarily. You know, they had their priorities straight. They had very clear vision. They could communicate, which right there's lots of smart people who are book smart like me and have trouble, you know, being art, being able to articulate what they're saying. Like they can sound, you know, great in a minute, but you know, where where are you actually building your vision to go to? You know, you know tell me the story, kind of thing. And it's surprising that you know how little correlation I found with like academic success as a cadet or a midshipman and like where I see that person going in the fleet
1: for speaking of midshipmen. So speaking of that, when did you make the decision, um, or start looking at doing something other than becoming a, a platoon leader in the army?
0: Yeah. So I think I had the inkling somewhere during Cal year, um, that maybe and maybe this is, like, from Buckner. I don't know. Um, you know, I Buckner, I thought, was much harder than than Beast Barracks. Uh, you know, physically much more demanding. I will remember the uh, the Bayonet Assault course really just smoked the hell out of me. Uh, you know, like, I was, I was hanging through all the pugil sticks and all the stuff running up to that, and that was, like, the cherry on top. Uh, and I was like, you know what? I don't know that the physical aspect of leadership is where I can make the biggest impact. And, you know, mulling over that... And in particular, in second class year, I was thinking about, you know, submarines are really technical. Nuclear power is really technical. I have, you know, I have engineering chops to be successful there. I'm gonna go organize a trip section. I'm sorry, you guys don't, yeah, trip section, all right. I gotta, (laughs) they call it movement orders here at Navy, so I gotta be careful. Uh, Organize a trip section down to Groton, Connecticut and go see a submarine. And I I just kind of self-started, did that with the Mech E-Club. And I said, I wanna go see a boat. And then I, I set foot on um, good ship, um, Philadelphia, SSN 690, which is a Los Angeles class boat, and got a tour of the Fork apartment with some cadets and one professor. And I was, where do I sign, right, basically walking out of that. I was like talking to the, the sailors on the ship and they're talking about their job and their gear and what they do and how it all works. And I'm like, I think I just found my tribe. Um, so I, I kind of at that point decided that, you know, I was going to give the, the army one last kind of good look in my CTLT, which, you know, probably not super representative. I went out to Fort Irwin in California and played, uh, Krasnovian op Four, uh, and, you know, I said, you know, this is pretty, you know, stateside cushy ish, you know, it's peacetime army, obviously. Right. At that time. And like, I was like, I just don't know that this is where I can have a big impact. And I, I don't know, you know, I was pretty convinced that I wanted to be an armor officer if I was going to um, end up in the Army, and that was ultimately my, my backup plan. Uh, but I just thought, you know, I think that it's not so much about, and I'm confident that the Army would have rounded me out better and focused some of my weak areas physically, definitely. Um, you know, leadership challenges, close order, lead, you know, close order tactics, stuff like that um, would have been very different. And would have strengthened me more, but at that point, as a you know, as a firstie, I'm thinking, this isn't. Uh, that's not exactly why I signed up. I want to have a big impact, and um, the reputation of the submarine force and what I saw on my tour, and I I'm not really sure how I knew this as well as I did, but the working relationship between the officers and enlisted on the sub, it's a really tight knit. You really live and die by the expertise of your sailors, and they know it. And the folks who are successful as submariners. They have to know it too, right? And you see some guys come through as submariners who who don't get that and like they just aren't successful. As a cadet I had this vision that you had to be standoffish to be successful as an officer in the army, you know, kind of this this mask of command and like don't be too familiar with your troopers. And I don't think that's really true, but that was my cadet impression of the army. And I thought that I could, you know, metaphorically let my hair down a little bit better. Um, as a submariner and a nuke, um, with that community, and that ended up being successful. You know, I think I, I was effective as a junior officer on the submarine. Um, as a result, so that kind of all came together last summer, uh, right before first year, and then they had advertised the inter-service transfer board, uh, which is basically, frankly, for me was the hard part. Right, was this is the step where West Point says we, we recommend that you get to go, before that you know the Navy says yes, come on over. And so that they advertise, it must have been like the first or second week after classes started. And it's kind of a hodgepodge. I remember there was one regimental attack and then just uh, you know uh, a rogues gallery of inter-service officers who were assigned as, as faculty um, representing all the different services. And so I uh, went to that board. I think we had 20 go in in, that, in our class. And uh, ultimately there were 10 inter-service transfers. Uh, seven of our classmates went in the Air Force. Um, uh, Diane Russell and I went and ended up in the Navy, um, and uh, we had one Marine. And so that was kind of like it all kind of came together. You may well remember, you know, Branch Night was a pretty big night, but for I would guess like 90% of the class, you know, they were either strategically betting on their first combat arm choice or they were, you know, there were, you know, high ranking getting their first non combat arms choice or whatever, but you know, there was not that many people who was like I was really on the bubble and didn't know what I was going to get, but I was I was one of those. So, um the downside was there was no keg for me. Right? There was no there's nobody there to receive me to say welcome to the submarine force, young man. Uh that would happen much later. So,
1: so graduation and transition from West Point And and everything you know is Army uh, to the Navy. What was that like?
0: So that was, you know, I lucked out in the uh, career field I chose because the submarine force, you've got to go through quite a pipeline to get to, you know, before they let you touch a submarine. So we graduated in June. I reported to power school in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, uh, in August. And I'm in the schoolhouse for like six months and that's a great leveling experience for you know various backgrounds you know we've got stem majors we've got non stem majors the the top guy in my power school class was a was an econ major and so um you know kind of they have to be able to tailor it to um tailor nuclear power to a broad group of of you know uh, baccalaureate holding officers who are ready to go be submariners and and actually surface warfare nukes uh, as well. And I felt like that six months plus the next six months which was prototype. Basically, they'll, they'll, they have a big reactor up on stilts that they let you play on uh, under supervision. Um, so you learn how to operate a plant, how to qualify in a plant. Uh, and then another uh, 12 weeks at sub school in Groton, Connecticut, uh, which I affectionately refer to as, you know, two weeks of uh, new material and 10 weeks of craps at the casino, uh-huh. <laughs> was was plenty to catch up to folks who'd had a bunch of naval sciences, Rozi or folks from the academy. Had I ever been underway on a ship? Nope, um, but i didn 't feel like that really was hampering me too much. There was so much OJt built into the pipeline, and as a junior officer on the submarine that i don 't think I was really disadvantaged. Um, there are probably other inter-service officer folks who feel very differently because, you know, they didn't necessarily – they probably went to a command earlier than I did. Because um, I, you know, I was almost 18 months removed from graduation by the time I showed up at Good Ship at Augusta.
1: The Naval Academy in comparison to the uh the Military Academy, their rooms are very tight. Um They have two to three <laughs> – very small space. Uh They very share – Rather than a communal bathroom, they have the shower and everything all in the room. Um, And so there's a lot about West Point where you share that experience with your, your your classmates for a year in close proximity. But it's not even comparable to what they ask them to do at the Naval Academy as far as proximity to other human beings. Did you find that that was kind of a shock when you, you walked on to your first sub?
0: No, I mean... It... The real trick is you, you end up packing very light and you just don't have a lot of stuff. Um, so my first underway, my first deployment, um, I was not even in, you know, the, the 688 submarine doesn't have a lot of officer berthing. It's a little bit light. So there's three three-person staterooms plus the CO and the XO have their own um, staterooms apart from that. But you actually have a complement of something like 14 or 15 total officers. So several, you know, five, six junior um, well, maybe not five, six, four or five of the junior, junior officers are elsewhere. They're in, in birthing with the crew. Um, there is a little birthing room that's called Nine Man on a 688, and it's uh, it's like a converted electronic space. So it's actually like super cold, which is really nice. It's a good place to sleep. Um, so for, you know, basically half my tour, I'm in Nine Man. And like, I might have, you know, one third of a small locker to hang something like my blues for deployment, my, my service dress blues. And everything else has got to fit under the four inch rack pan that I'm sleeping on. And so you can imagine the rack is probably six by two and a half and four inches deep. And like everything you have ought to fit in there. And for underway, you know, you don't really need very much. You need your, you know, your underpants and your, your socks and a couple sets of coveralls and you're, you're in good shape, you know? So you just kind of, I found it was not hard to go with the flow with that. Um, a lot of people ask, you know, did I ever feel really claustrophobic? You know, uh, the hardest part about it, I think, was, like, we didn't have very many laptops. And so being a junior officer pretty low in the totem pole, I'm just going to go bang out this piece of work, and, like, I immediately get bounced off the la- the one laptop in that stateroom that I'm borrowing uh, because a department head's coming in or somebody else has got a more pressing need for it. So there was a lot of... There's a lot of floating around and, like, where can I go study? Where can I go get a checkout? Where can I do X piece of work? Um, And the submarine's actually really well designed for underway operations where you've got roughly a third of the crew is in the rack, um, a third of the crew is on watch. And then, like, that's how the rest of the spaces are kind of designed. It's like there's room for about a third of the crew at a given time. When you pull in the port, it's really... That is really like you have a whole lot of people on the boat up at one time getting in each other's way and makes it really hard to get work done, uh, you know. And I'm just talking about like office work, not to mention, you know, trying to get maintenance done in an engine room where, you know, you've got physical you used to call it the butts per square inch limit. Right? I just can't put two mechanics in the same space working this uh, even dissimilar jobs they're going to get in way, in way of each other and we'll see that in the shipyard a bunch. But yeah, the, the claustrophobia didn't really bug me, although I will say, and this really heavily factored, I think, into why I didn't stick around in submarines, is like, you know, the stress level of the of the boat. I don't feel like I responded well to. I ended up doing two six-month deployments on Augusta, and on my second one, uh, I ended up punching the bulkhead, literally, with my hand, uh, five times in six days. And like, that's really dumb, <laughs> right? Like that was my uh, that was my venting, you know. And it's like the steel's gonna win every time against your tissues. Uh, but like, you know, I was like, wow, this is a really I, I felt kind of like for me and how I'm handling it a really unhealthful level of stress, and it's affecting my performance and my whole attitude. And I'm like, so okay, I'm not gonna come back as a department head. You know, that's that's kind of how that all came together. Um, I actually. Decided to not come back to be a department head after about 11 and a half months on the boat Which I thought was of my three-year tour, you know pretty fair and you know not predetermined not prejudging You know that gave me a couple underways plus a full deployment um, on the boat and uh, You know, I think that was pretty fair Uh, Got to see a lot of stuff right got to go my first deployment. We went to It was really kind of crazy because this was in the run-up to um, the opening of the Iraq war and in 2003, you know, in um, January, <laughs> as we're, we're planning to deploy in uh, March, that's our normal scheduled deployment in March 2003, and in January 22nd of 2003, the XO comes on the announcing circuit and says, you know, you guys need to get your stuff in order because uh, we're notionally attached to the Teddy Roosevelt Battle Group and she's pulling out. So go get your stuff in order. So I said, oh. OK, so I, I, I pick up the landline as soon as he, he drops the mic, I pick up the landline from the boat and I call my uh, then fiance and I said, hey, honey, where are you at? She's like, oh, I'm in Hartford. Um, I'm at a job fair. I'm like, oh, OK, that's nice. I need you to come home so we can get married tonight. And so uh, we were our own kind of shotgun wedding, not knowing when the boat was actually going to leave leave port. Now, we had we'd actually planned our wedding for the 9th of February um, and I didn't know until like three days out that we would actually make our wedding date, and uh, the boat deployed the next day. So that was a that was a shock.
1: What was uh, the deployment like? From the experience of so, the, doing that, not only um, in the navy, but really in the in. Under sea, so you're not seeing the planes take off. You're not seeing uh, the troops deploy out. You're, you're 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 patrolling in support of that that carrier group.
0: Yeah. So so yeah, we never actually played with that carrier group. So we our orders turned around to sprint as fast as you can. Um, you know, so we were basically running flank bells all the way across the Atlantic uh, to get in position. And I can't remember who was already on the podcast talking about Turkey and overflight. Um, or actually, Turkey and invading right land land forces coming through Turkey and and invading into northern Iraq. Matt we Hopper had the same problem Turkey. with the cruise missiles. Yeah. So the 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 plan was to do cruise missile strike from the eastern Mediterranean and overfly um, Turkey. And Turkey says, uh, au contraire," right? So um, that whole lead up to that, I am rapidly trying to qualify to be a watchstander in the engine room. I'm I'm getting lots of <laughs> lots of radiation exposure, Uh, not lots, not like lots for a nuke, not lots for like a human. Uh, But, you know, rapidly we have to in two days, like take everybody who is supposed to shoot from the East Med and they have to go through the the, uh, Suez Canal and end up in the Red Sea so that they can shoot over um, other Saudi. Uh, And so that was pretty crazy. I I was pretty well isolated from that because I was just a low man on the total pole. And like I was caring about, how uh you know how a droplet of water gets turned into the light in my rack light, you know level of qualifications on the plant, but uh but yeah, so like so then we 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 actually did do the cruise missile strikes at the opening phases, and like when I think the news was saying, you know, oh, we may have gotten uh Saddam's son, like it would have been that tranche of cruise missiles, um I don't think we did right, I don't think we got them then, but uh. So so yeah, I didn't. We were the hardest part. I think for me, was you know you're really in a news vacuum, for the most part. And I well remember you know right before we struck, and I was now qualified as an engineering officer of the watch, so I was standing watch back in the engine room with my watchstanders. Um, you know all we had was you know president's declaration of you know, you know some of the speeches. You know the, the primetime, I don't remember if it was prime time address or when it came out. Right, but. A, just reading that to my watch because we're just like, we don't know what's going on. And we, we're, we hope this is the right call and we hope this is all for the best and all. You know, we just don't know. Um, so that's very different. Um, the submarines are probably not as blacked out as they were then as far as like the, you know, we have better bandwidth, we have more data coming in. Some of the boats, some of the bo- more advanced boats were waiting to shoot while they were, they had CNN playing on the mess decks. So they had as much information as everybody else but we were kind of in a vacuum. And when we did, um, when we did launch our missiles, so we were 10 for 10 out of the Tomahawk cruise missiles we were asked to launch, um, I got to, you know, my battle station was pretty cheesy. I was a phone talker, but I was in the CO's stateroom, you know, that's basically a damage control center space. And there was nothing, you know, no damage, no crises, whatever. But um, I did have a view of the periscope uh, camera and so I got to see each of the 10 cruise missiles go off and the rockets separate and see it uh, heel over and cruise away. And that was it was pretty interesting and I guess made it feel a little bit more real than it would have been otherwise if I was, you know, staring at gauges in the engine room. Uh, but yeah, that, that information blackout aspect of it, I think, was probably one of the hardest and most surreal parts of it. Uh, I well remember my second deployment, I came back and I said, what do you mean... They redesigned the Mustang. They brought back the Charger, and Peter Jennings, our uh, you know my favorite newscaster, ABC News, is now dead. You're know, like I will never be out of the loop ever again, and that kind of fed my being a you know like politics news junkie, probably to an unhealthy uh, extent, but uh, not wanting to be out of the loop, um, I think really fed into that from there on out.
1: Talk me through that transition um, from serving with the submarine force and being at sea uh, to being an instructor.
0: Yeah, so um, Norwich University is a very funny place, um, and maybe, maybe if you're not from the Northeast, you're probably not familiar with it. I really wasn't until I kind of got there. Um, so we talk about Thayer this and Thayer that, and here's a statue of Thayer. But Thayer was our fourth soup, right? Our third soup was Alden Partridge, and so it's a little unclear from the historical record, but he may have absconded with some money to go found his own school, and that school was Norwich University. Um, so he's he's on all of their graphics and all over the place. Whereas he's you know kind of in West Point lore, he's something of a scoundrel, uh, certainly when held up against there. But uh, yeah, I, I you know the. The detailing process to get orders, you know, you're kind of negotiating with the detailers and what's on the, sl- you know, we call it a slate of jobs available to us. And, you know, I i was pretty convinced I was probably going to be out of the Navy. So getting an opportunity to go back to school was really important to me. So kind of worst ROTC job beats the best any other job, just about. Um, and so I was a little bit strategic. I threw in um, VMI. ROTC had a spot on my slate, and so did Norwich. And so I ranked those two 1-2. Two. As it turns out, Norwich doesn't have really any organic master's programs, but they had recently started up online schools. And so that was kind of all in the calculus of you know, what, I, what I want to uh, get out of my tour because I was, you know, if I was going to make this a transition point to get out, I was terrified is not quite the right word, but I, I was worried about not having any additional credential. Um, to make that transition and be a little bit more marketable. And of course, you know, um, it didn't come to that, but uh, they had an online MBA program that I started while I was there as an instructor. And I really did not like the format. It's not so much their fault as, you know, online learning, as gosh, we've all learned of late. You really have to do it very well for it to be really effective. And I think we were just in the early stages of figuring out how to do remote learning at all and it was it was apparent to me that you know like these online discussion forums in the MBA, um, they didn't really suit me well. I didn't feel like you know, I feel it was just kind of like paper chase and rigmarole, and I wasn't getting a lot out of it. Uh, but being an instructor with the kids in the ROTC battalion, that felt great. You know that was, I feel like I'm leaving imprints, on the on the midshipmen who come through those programs, and that that really satisfied a niche that you know led me to think. That's a job I would like to do going on, you know, going forward is, is, is working with undergrads, particularly engineers and trying to, you know, leave my mark a little bit more, um, and that I could add value there. Um, I'm trying to think of other things about Norwich that are noteworthy. Yeah, it was, you know, I was pretty run, run out after being on the boat for two deployments and some time in the yards and, uh. You know, there was a lot of R&R aspect to that job, as well as doing the, the grad schooling. Um, but then, you know, I was, was kind of asking myself, is there another job that I could go do? The, the nuclear Navy is really kind of notorious for saying there's, there's only one way we want you to serve anymore. You know, we've made this investment in your nuclear training, and that's what we want you to do forevermore. And, you know, supposedly the Naval Reactors Group is, you know, rather would rather see you depart the Navy than do something else. But I said, well, it's kind of like that metal quaver. I'm just going to say throw in for a lateral transfer to something else um, and, and see if there's another job I can go do in the Navy. And so I pulled the thread a little bit. Um, while I was on the boat, I got a chance to do scuba, the scuba course down in, at dive school at, at uh, Panama City Beach in Florida. And I re- remembered, you know, there's some other guys, other classes running around on there. Who are those guys? And so I pulled back the layers and found... There's a corner of the Navy, a pretty small community, called the Engineering Duty Officers. And they're really acquisition professionals. And they also manage the public shipyards. They buy, you know, they're involved with design, construction, maintenance, and disposal, basically, of all the ships and submarines. Um, And a few other things, like Navy diving and salvage, um, and strategic systems, and a few other odds and ends. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. And then I learned that those guys have to go get a technical master's degree. I said, oh, that's extremely interesting. You know? And I could go do diving again. And I'm like, oh, wow, where do I sign up? And so I didn't actually expect the lateral transfer to come through. Again, You know, the reputation of naval reactors being what it was. Um, but make them tell you no. I, I threw in for the lat transfer board and got picked up as an EDO, engineering duty officer. And so that would have been November of '06. And they, they sent me off to grad school uh, starting in May of 07. And, uh, and that was, right, so this is me starting my six-year commissioned point, having not been in school for a while. I mean, I've been school-adjacent, but, you know, an online MBA is not thinking, like, how to compete in a, you know, do well in a, in a master's-level engineering program. So, you know, that was, that was drink from the fire hose. You know, you've been out of school for six years. You have no idea what you don't even remember what a differential equation looks like, smells like anything. Right. Um, so, so that was that next transition was going back to school and trying to keep up with the hundred pound heads around me, um, back at grad school. Um, you yeah, know, first time.
1: And so you're walking into MIT, uh, to get a master's with all those hundred pound brains. Um, How much had your experience at West Point and your experience learning uh, nukes with the Navy prepared you for that?
0: So, you know, there's the, you know, the academic piece. You know, I felt like I was well prepared. So I did a program I'd never done anything with naval construction and engineering before. You know, I didn't even know what keeps boats floating upright other than what I learned on the submarine. Um, So there was a, you know, there was like a material disadvantage of like I'm doing new stuff, pretty new stuff to me. But at the same point, you know, one thing I will say about the undergrad experience and it doesn't matter what your major was as a cadet, like we're going to go drop you into something you don't know and you're going to learn how to teach yourself or learn from peers or you know, hopefully teach other peers or cooperate to graduate and figure out a way. Um a lot of the times when we think about the jobs that we ask junior officers to go do, it's a lot of that. It's kind of, you know, letter to Garcia stuff. And so the good news is there's a cohort of us that class up every year in that MIT program, and we're pretty close, and it's, it's again, it's much like the environments you find in the cadet classrooms where it's a lot of cooperate to graduate, and somebody's going to figure it out fast, somebody's going to take a little bit longer on this particular subject, and they're going to pay it into the group, and then there may be a time when they draw from the group. And so um, it's kind of funny because, like, the Navy officers there... It's pretty clear that we're not, like, we couldn't have gotten there if Navy wasn't, fun, you know, foot in the bill. You know, I may be downplaying that a little bit, but, right, like, our academic preparation versus, like, Joe Schmo, master's student, like, is just not as good. It's just, you know, with the exception of ones, ones and twos. Um, but at the same point, like, we're just going to do it. We're just going to, you know, we're going to throw ourselves into it. This is our full-time job right, and and kill it dead and move on to the next thing. So, uh, you know, I found, I found it a very, um, to some extent, like a locker room environment a little bit with the folks in the 2N program. But also, like, nobody's going to stop you from doing what you want. So I would really wanted to study nuclear engineering. And they said, you know, you, you have time here, so go do it, you know. Um, no, nobody's going to stop you, so go take those classes you want and build the academic program that you want. And I found that very refreshing, and liberating. So, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I think I was well-prepared, not so much about like the nuts and bolts of what I learned at West Point, but like how, learning how to learn and learning how to be successful in a a challenging academic environment. That was much more valuable.
1: Then you graduate from MIT and you transition um, out of submarines and and into naval salvage. Talk me through that, what that, what that training experience mid career looked like and, and, and what did you do?
0: Yeah. So, so the first stop, you know, the way I'd kind of worked it all together, they would send me back to dive school again. And this is a longer course than the scuba course I'd done when I was a submarine officer. And so all of that was very, well, pretty old hat. Now I'll tell you, dive school is a whole lot more fun at 26 years old than 32 years old. Um, So I'm getting smoked and like really smoked. I was not just you know like at 26 I was probably like okay middle you know center mass of the pack kind of guy and I was like oh we're all done with our burpees and he's over there he's still doing burpees like just don't quit and and definitely like all the cadet stuff prepares you for that it's like this is a military school it's all about can we get in your head and and all of that so the diet school round two. Um, unaccompanied sadly for my wife you know that was probably the hardest part about it was I was kind of off on my own she was back up with her folks Um, but you know the dive school itself was okay Um, and then I report up to Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in Kittery, Maine and check in as a project officer Um, they sent me to California for five weeks to finish out one of these um, basically the the first course of study as an engineering duty officer this is called their basic course which is like a mid-year, all oh, mid-career, guys. Um, and then come back to the shipyard to find that they're going to send me to California for uh, five months or so on an off-yard availability. And I'm like, I didn't realize we did that. I didn't realize. You know, I thought, you know, engineering duty officers, that's that's like a you know, kiss-your-wife-every-night kind of job. And I'm like, no, 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 young man. Like, we need you to go uh, off to San Diego because we're going to go repair this submarine here. And so that was... Uh, that was eye-opening. Uh, I learned a ton from the folks on that off-yard project. Uh, this was Good Ship San Francisco. It's uh, her last major availability before her final deployment, and then she would she would get inactivated after that. And but uh, but at the same point, I was again, uh, you know, removed from my wife and home, and she was kind of off on her lonesome in Maine, um, without anybody, you know, kind of around, and I was working stupid 14, 16 sixteen-hour days almost every day of the week and it's it was really unsustainable and i think you know really unhealthy from a mental perspective and i just didn't have any balance so um got through it did okay boat came out you know actually it was a very successful availability i don't get to claim very much credit for that but um it was a really good team that got her through that um and then got to come back to kittery and got assigned to a new project while i'm still doing quals at the shipyard um, and that was the USS Miami, and I'm almost certain that this isn't probably penetrated the Army lore, but the Miami project was really special. Um, you may have recently seen in the news Bono Marchard and the fire in San Diego that took out that entire ship. Yep. So up until that point, um, there was the Miami S S N seven fifty five was. You know, we brought her into uh, dry dock in 2012 and we were going gangbusters, ripping stuff out, putting stuff in, going great. Two months in the dock and a fire was set and that fire burned for 10 and a half hours on Miami. And I I got the word, you know, I was at home and like called back to the shipyard. We need you here now. Like, what's going on? Like, not that there was a fire on the Miami or that there is a fire on the Miami. The Miami is on fire. I drive back onto the shipyard. And there's this pall of smoke uh, over the top of the, you know, basically framed in by the buildings. And that submarine burned for ten and a half hours and was just... The Fork apartment was gutted. Absolutely gutted. It, you know, it took us a long time to figure out. We kind of had our suspicions that something weird was going on, but it ended up being that it was an arson event. And I think we think that that's what happened with Bonhomme Richard as well. Um, but that was... You know, recovering Miami. What we were going to do, how we were going to do it, was a big piece of my last year at the shipyard. Um, kind of all-consuming. And like, I'm only confident. You know, submarine maintenance and repair is a really tough business. There's there's a lot of constraints. There's a lot of you can't do that until you do this. There's a lot of how do I even do that. Um, And I'm convinced that the public shipyards are successful where they can be mostly because they have an institutional memory of what they're doing most of the time, you know, maybe 90%. So I bring the submarine in, I drain all the tanks, I look in all the tanks, I inspect all the stuff, I take some stuff off, and then I discover, okay, what I figured was going to happen is about 90% right, I have 10% of other stuff that I have to go figure out. And so the shipyard's very good at coming up with solutions to those, you know, 10% problems. But here, it's like 100% of the availability is, is groundbreakingly new work that we have not done, and we don't know if it's going to be any good, and we don't know if the hull's still good or the piping's still good or how do we get our workforce back in, this, in the submarine to work safely. And so there was this huge ongoing plan as we execute challenge, and that's just the organization really is not... Already set up well to do that, and so that was really eye-opening for me. You know, you talk about um, trying to lead in an environment where changes is, is on the menu, and it was, you know, it was very much, what can we do, what's the smart play here, how can we recover the ship, and so there's just this tremendous amount of work that we'd done. Um, I, my little piece of it. Uh, I brought in, uh, so I was, the job was called the work integration leader. So there's a lot of work that gets done on a, a project submarine that's not, uh, done by the shipyard based on what we're good at and all that. And, uh, we had to bring in fire recovery specialists to try to clean up the boat to get everybody in and be able to, um, work safely without respirators. And then later we were trying to figure out how bad that, um, The perchlorate smoke from the fire got basically everywhere in the forward compartment and how bad that was going to be for the piping. And, you know, bottom line ends up being, even though we clean it, you can't guarantee we don't have chlorides on your pipe in a crack that's going to break. And so rip it all out. And the price tag for the recovery jumps by, you know, 300 million extra dollars that the Navy doesn't have. So this is 2012 to 2013 timeframe where budget sequestration is the era of the day. And so shortly after I left the shipyard, uh, they decided that they were going to strike her from the, the registry and uh, decommission her in place. And that was really hard. But one thing I will tell you about the shipyard is I didn't appreciate the patriotism and the competence of our civilian workforce. You know, as a submariner, you're pretty well removed from uh, Department of Defense civilians, but you can't escape them at the shipyard. And down to, like... You know, your mechanic, your supervisor, your um, your zone manager, the people who are on the project teams themselves—like fantastic patriots. And watching them, like the hardest thing that was for them was we just had this fire. It ends up turning out it was a shipyarder who set the fire, um, making those folks sit on their hands while we don't know what to do. That was really hard because they're you know they have a bias for like let's put it right, let's go rip this out, let's go, let's go, let's go like, wait, we need to figure this out. And then ultimately we didn't repair that ship the rest of the way we, we scrapped her. So I was really impressed by that in my time at Portsmouth.
1: When, when you have something of value, whether it's a a boat um, or a project and people have committed hours, years, months of their life uh, into it to see it fall apart, um, I could I definitely feel what it would be like to to, to hear the word that, that you can't save it and you have to walk away.
0: Yeah. The, one of the biggest takeaways I ever got, I had a great project superintendent on that project, uh, Scott Kimmel. And I am so convinced that the technical piece of our job, even if you're an engineering duty officer, which sounds like a very technical part of the work is like 5% maybe. And like, Motivation and performative things and flair for the dramatic and theatrical and like you know he used to tell me that I just need to get a you know a five cent sticker and like it says you know Kimmel's superintendent or uh, Kimmel's supervisor of the week or whatever and I'm like I award that and like the guys really care and like they're like that's a real plummet or a feather in their cap um, you know and it's 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 remarkable how much you know going back to that question about um, honor and stuff. It's like, the reverse is true. Like, there are definitely simple tweaks that you can make to really impact the performance of your teams. And we may poo-poo it, we may discount it, you know. Um, In retrospect, I'm thinking back to like, hails and farewells and dining-ins and dining-outs and like those soft things that are like, oh man, this is just BS and I don't really want to be here. Like, actually super valuable. And... I don't think I appreciated that well before, you know, as a mid-grade type
1: guy. I I, I say uh sandcastles. Um <laughs> because if if you build a sandcastle and you build it with your friends and then the waves take it away, um hopefully you have more than just the memories. Um but when you invest a time, effort, sweat and sometimes blood into something and to have it taken away with with uh, by something you can't control, it can be extremely painful. Um, and if it's taken away by something that um, is like a, a decision by someone uh, that you can't influence, that can build resentment. Um, so it's, it's those things that you really have to think through as a leader. Uh, how do I manage this uh, effort with our, our subordinates that I, I commit them to do well, um, but also prepare them that, It may be ripped out from underneath us.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't have the same experiences of our classmates in in war, but uh, gosh, that's got to feel like how we came out of Iraq and how Afghanistan looks now. Right. With like, how do you cope with it? You know, what, what was it all about? And I, I can't even begin to process what that looks like on the army side of things. But I know it's, I know it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a real challenge.
1: You never lose the people, though, Um, in the moments you had with it. Uh, So as long as you build the team and invest in the team. So talk through Undersea Rescue Command. What was that like?
0: I'll just tell you it's the best job in the Navy. How about that? So the job I got uh, is the the engineer officer. So we take an engineering duty officer who has a submarine background and who has a diving and salvage officer qual. And we drop them into this little goofy Submariner Command and sitting on the runway in North Island in Coronado, California, ready to go fly away anywhere in the world is all of the Navy's submarine rescue assets, minus a few things, but essentially all of the stuff that will bring Submariners up off the bottom. And what a great mission, you know, uh, clear. I know what I need to do. I need to be ready at all times to go do it. I've got a crew to train. And so this was very different again than the shipyard, where, you know, the shipyard was big civilian organization trying to, you know, push uh, Jello a little bit to try to get it to respond to what we wanted to do. And now I'm back with sailors and divers, you know. So my department uh, was all the submarine operators, submersible operators, and so they're divers. Um, a very small command, smaller than the submarine. Um, I've, uh, you know, I started with a served CO a former submarine ceo skipper and then later a you know a guy who was taking his first command and really tighten it and could have a big impact as an 04 and like i was in the middle of just about everything going on and that was fantastic and learned a ton because i you know i'm i'm trying to learn how we're going to train our crew our, our divers who are going to operate these submersibles i get a piece in that and there's an operations piece there i got to maintain all of this stuff certified so that we're allowed by the Navy to dive it with humans inside. I've got to work with the planning yard who does all this technical stuff where, like, we got this problem. What do you say, planning yard? Um, and then there's a programmatics piece because we're actually funded through a program office in Washington, D.C. And so, like, the engineer job is great in that you're you're flying around in all these different areas and really adding values. You're speaking for the command to lots of external folks, um, representing the command to to, you know, Naval Sea Systems Command, where the program office is. Just a fantastic job, trying to... <laughs> submariners are very particular about how things are said, right? And they have a whole interior, interior communications manual. And to a submariner's ear, you listen to my divers who are operating a submersible, and it sounds like they're being inform, informal, I'm like, no, 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 that's... They're performing as trained. We're not going to retrain all of the Navy divers to talk like submariners. It's just not going to happen. And that's okay. Like, let me hold your hand and say, like, this is what they're saying. And they're not being, you know, they're not joking around. This is how they talk. Um, so being kind of a liaison, middleman, working with the maintainer to keep things rescue ready. What a fantastic job. Great people. Um, I hadn't, you know, worked with junior, junior sailors in a very long time at that point, you know, since I left the submarine. So from 2005 to 20, what was that? 2013. Yep. It was great. Just fantastic you know, learn how to do effective fit rep writing and, you know, enlisted evaluations again and a little bit of what the XO has to do and, you know, just really developmentally excellent job. I think I had a big impact. So I was out while I was still attached to the shipyard. The minesweeper Guardian had run aground in the Philippines. And so that was a big egg on our face moment as a Navy. And like we had to go make it right. So we flew out a salvage team and we're ripping this thing apart off the reef. And part of that, they said, okay, I want to rotate some salvage officers through to get a little bit of the developmental experience because when we have these kind of national events happen, they may only come every few years. Let's make the most out of it. So I got to go out to the Philippines for a couple of weeks to see us carve up this minesweeper like a Thanksgiving turkey. And it was amazing. Uh, while, I, you know, while I'm in the air... In, or in, in my itinerary, trying to get out to, to the, the project in the middle of the um, Sulu Sea, or maybe a syllabus sea, I can't remember. I think it's Sulu Sea. Uh, I bump into the, the superintendent of Navy Diving and Salvage, who knows where I'm going next. And he said, oh, by the way, uh, did you hear? I'm like, did I hear what? So on Valentine's Day of 2013, the uh, premier diving asset that they had at Undersea Rescue Command had a handling mishap and got dropped onto the deck about three or four feet, because it came out of its handling system. Uh, There were four people inside, thankfully nobody hurt, amazingly. But the whole two years, first two years of my uh, time at Undersea Rescue Command, the the focus was trying to get that thing restored. And we stripped it all off, and even before I got there, they they sent the hull off back to my my shipyard at, at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard to get weld repairs and ultrasonically tested and, you know, non-destructive t- testing and figure out that the hull's okay. And it took us a whole year or two, you know, a whole couple years of integrating to get the material cert and the crew certified again to operate. Meanwhile, I've turned over all my crew except for one, uh, one sailor. And he's like, he was in the, he was in the, the, it's called the pressurized rescue module, PRM. Uh, He was in it when it fell, and he's like, I'm never setting foot in that again. And I'm like, okay, I don't blame you. Um, So, you know, that was quite a challenge. We're like, how do I, like, I've never seen this thing operate. How do I be the subject matter expert in training my crew so that we'll be ready um, when the time comes and we get it certified? So we got it certified in July of, would have been 15, um, big, you know, training event with the squadron to say, you know, okay, take your lumps on, here's what problems you need to go fix still with your crew and your training, but you are safe to operate. And so there's a tradition in the submarine force we borrowed from World War II. The old fleet submarines used to come back off patrol and they would say that if you had a successful uh, you know, deploy, uh, patrol, war patrol in the Pacific, that you know, all torpedoes fired on targets, etc. they would come back with a, a broom on their mast. And that's how they would return back probably to Pearl Harbor or wherever they were forward deployed from. And so that we've stolen that um, imagery for sea trials. And so back to the flair for the dramatic and the soft skill stuff, like I was adamant that we were gonna put a broom on the PRM <laughs> at the completion of our sea trials. And so uh, the sailor who was in it during the drop uh, and one of our contract workers, one of, not contractors, contractors, um, who was actually operating the deck cradle, and the thing fell, like, inside of a foot away from him. He was almost crushed, right? Uh, I had those two guys, and they didn't have any idea. I had those guys come up, and they were the ones who put the broom up. You know? So it's, it's recognize, you know, what your team has done. Don't make, you know, flare for the dramatic is great, but it's not about you. It's about the team and celebrating with the team. You know, like, I'm in the team. I'm not the team. Kind of thing. And I think that's, you know, I didn't really appreciate that as much uh, as a young pup, as a, as a junior officer, but super important and a big takeaway out of that tour.
1: One of the things I think um, in the Army, because we deal with things on land, you do lots and lots of rehearsals and planning uh, in preparation for execution. But there is a lot of give and take on on risks that you can't assume. Submarines are closer to like spacecraft. um, Where one mistake can be enough that you you can lose a lot. So with the preparation for the PRM to get it ready to go. um, How how detail oriented, how focused did you guys have to be with every aspect of that thing when you repaired it?
0: Oh, yeah. So the... From a requirements perspective, um, the certification of those deep diving submarines that we put people in, Deep Diving Submersibles is its own program. Um, There is a separate one for submarines called Subsafe ever since the Thresher disaster. But at the time that they stood up Subsafe, they decided we need to be able to get people off of a submarine if it's stricken and not, right? If it goes on a sea trials and it's sitting down there at, you know, I don't know, on the continental shelf at 1,500 feet, we have to have a way to get submariners off. So that gave birth to what's called the Deep Submergence Program. And so along with, you know, the heavy requirements that we lay on how do you do maintenance, how do you make sure you're going to have watertight integrity of the black sub, you know, the the fleet submarine, um, this Deep Submergence Program has similar but slightly different and highly stringent requirements for how do I know if I put that thing in the submersible air environment, it's not going to poison your crew. And, you know, let alone hull integrity and, and a lot of other things, you know, like, uh, what what's going to guarantee that this thing I set on the side of it isn't going to implode when I go down to this, this depth? And so, yeah, so it's, you can lose perspective a little bit based on how rigorous the details and the requirements are. Um, so you do have to guard against that, but it is, it is down to the gnats, um, It's really, really very specific of prove to me that the thing that you put in this ship is going to be okay. And there's a whole chain of evidence to do that. You know, from how I ordered the material, how I proved that's what I have, how I proved that the right person installed it, put it together right. In the case of, like, the atmosphere stuff, there's off-gas testing, right? So we send it out to a lab, and they tell us that we're not going to poison ourselves if we put this inside somewhere. There's just a million of those kind of things. And so that project, you know, one of the hardest parts, right? So get the crew ready, get the crew ready. We're as ready as we think we can be. And then there's a material problem, you know, and so there's a lot of hurry up and wait. So to some extent there is the rehearsal piece, but, you know, for the cruiser, but, you know, we, for example, we got down, we had to test, you know, because we actually will open the hatch uh, to be able to bring submariners in. So we have these test fixtures down on the bottom of the ocean. And so one's at about 450 feet and the other is 1940 feet. And uh, by the way, one, one thing that's great about this program because it's global rescue and will help anybody who asks, it's entirely unclassified, which is another thing that's great. Like I never had to worry about classification stuff. Um, but so we go down our first major test event. We bring the PRM down with people inside and we made it to this 450 foot uh, depth target and we open the hatch, everything's great, everything's good. We might have one or two little things that we fix, and then we go transition to our deep dive, and the hatch won't open. we are like, what do I do now, right? So we, we go back down, we put a torque wrench on it. Like, I really can't. It's not just my divers are limp-wristing it. No, no, we we're actually quite glad that they, they stopped <laughs> and didn't try to wrench it or something. Like, you could have a really bad problem. Uh, but yeah, the hatch didn't open because there's another material problem. Like, we need to change how the shoes fit this, this hatch. Um, because the hatch actually deforms under pressure in an unusual way based on its design. So lots of technical challenges, lots of requirements levied on the program, high expectations of the crew. And, you know, for example, in that program, I don't even own my procedures. So, like, you know, this procedure is not well written. It's, it's unclear to my operators. It's not saying what we think is right. And it might take a year and a half to get that fixed, right? In the meantime, I'm trying to operate with some temporary standing order or something. So, yeah, as an engineer, you can really get bogged down in that. But still, what a great, like, that is the job where I added the most value in my time in the Navy. Bar none. Um, Totally different than what I get to do now, but really felt like I had a, I kept the command in good shape a lot of times. I felt uh, where I really, you know... I wasn't probably a single-point failure, but there were a lot of times where, like, because I caught something or I saw something or I headed something off that I really helped out. And I can't say I feel that same way about my time on, you know, on the submarine
1: on Augusta. Now, moving forward to where you are now, <clears throat> a, a career in the Navy, uh, a combination of time with submarines and, and time with recovery, um, working at the Naval Academy as an, an instructor. What is that like?
0: Well, uh, it comes with its own challenges that I don't think I appreciated when I said, hey, this sounds like a great opportunity. Let me go. Um, so uh, backing up, while I was at Undersea Rescue, I, I threw in to try to a uh, billet to go do a doctorate. And they said, well, <laughs> the board process let me go. Um, my community wasn't very happy, but I didn't say three bags full and, and, and off I went. So, so I, I pursued a doctorate. And I think because I didn't say three bags full, um, I kind of had a little bit of a pall on my record. And as it turns out, that's probably why I am here now, because there was a problem with manning here and folks who have the right credentials to, to take one of these jobs here in naval architecture. And I was right place, right time to somewhat, you know, somewhat kind of written off by my home community as an engineering duty officer. Um, And I knew the reason why I wanted to go pursue a doctorate is I wanted the teaching credential. So I had a little bit of that taste from the ROTC experience and knowing that, that really fires me up. When I can see how I've left little fingerprints, metaphorical, um, on my students, and especially budding engineers, like, you know, I don't really need you to be a wizard with a calculator. That's not really what engineering is. You know, there's room for creativity and there's a whole lot of room for like, well, that just can't be right. Let me rerun that. Right. And trying to break through with my students that um, you're not automatons, you know, we need you to be actively engaged in what you're doing because at the end of the day, as an engineer, you're going to review a lot of stuff and you're like, you didn't do it. You didn't put it together, but you have to to develop those skills of like intuiting what doesn't, doesn't make sense. What is the right way to do the, the, you know, the problem or more likely the open-ended design things that you're gonna go do. Um, but so I got here and started as a professor in 2018 in the Naval Architecture and Ocean Engineering Department. And um, it's been challenging. It's been very challenging. Now, I'm, you know, I think I've found my footing as an instructor, but there's a lot more to the job that I think than I realized about beyond that. You know, there's an expectation not only that you, you know, you're providing service to your academic department, to the yard wide, the uh, the academic school we're in, the School of Engineering and Weapons. That piece I kind of had an idea of, you know, where do you get yourself involved and how do you get impact with the midshipmen outside of the classroom? But beyond that, you know, the research expectations has been uh, really a challenge for me to, to keep that into balance. Um, my research right now, you know I kind of studied in the doctorate um, metal additive manufacturing um, but there's there's been fewer opportunities for me to kind of advance along those lines and so now i'm I'm more focused on um, submarine hydrodynamics, which is you know more in line with what I'm teaching and what the resources are available to me. but that transition's not been great you know and um, I'm finding more and more that in the it goes all the way back to West Point like I felt like West Point was really good at teaching me how to get urgent things off my plate, and I wish I had spent. And you know, some of the most successful of our classmates have already figured this out, right? Like, I wish I had figured out, like, great, you're really good at what you're doing. Are you doing the right thing right now, or have you carved out time to do the right thing or to think deeply? Or, you know, I've got I've got a copy of Covey's um, uh, First Things First. Actually, I'm going through now with a, a, a third-class midshipman I'm coaching. And I was just like, where was this book for me you know, 15 years ago where I really could have, you know, I'm great at rapidly dealing with the problem that's on my plate, but I'm not great at defending my plate from problems and selecting what should be on my plate. And I'm still trying to figure out, even 20-plus years in, how do I do that better? How can I get kind of the long-term view and be more successful and more effective that way. And so the big piece for me, I think, is like that, that research piece and advancing this as a scholar has been, you know, that's always the last priority for me. And it it's always getting starved. And so that's that's been my real challenge. And I, like, I love, it is such, I don't want to say it's an easy mission, but it's so easy to be motivated when your mission is staring back at you in the classroom, right? They are immediately not only important right but urgent and let me get you squared away right like it's it's easy to do that when you let other things fall off the plate and i would argue that's the right priority but at the same point if you if you do that exclusively you never have anything else on your plate so uh i think that the midshipmen and the cadets are probably more similar than we would want to admit in our rivalry right things are a little different um the midshipmen get really upset when I say that I think that they have entirely too much free will, but I will tell them that from time to time, uh, by comparison to cadets. But uh, But they're great, right? I mean, how could you not be influenced by Americans who are signing up to go do the work of defending this country, right? And, okay, we got, you know, I'll cheer their success 24-7, only 364. Got it. But, you know, I got fantastic humans walking around this place just like, cadets at West Point. And you, know, like, you got to pinch yourself every day that you get to be around those folks.
1: As an instructor, <clears throat> how do you tap into that talent? How do you tap into that passion um, And in the classroom? And how much of that uh, do you mirror what you saw at West Point from your instructors? or from the leaders that you served with in the Navy?
0: Well, I think the first thing to recognize though, is like, so little of what I teach is content. I hope, or they're not going to remember the content, maybe one or two things, right? Okay. But like how to think, how to attack, how to not be intimidated. Right. Um, yes, you can, uh, attack this thing that you don't understand yet. Um, a bit of that, try to give them a little confidence in that grit, you know, that that's going to carry them through other things beyond just academics. Um, I put a lot of, you know, try a season as much a fleet experience and here's a problem I've seen kind of thing into the coursework, um, mostly just as an opportunity to get back up on a soapbox and talk about the problems I've seen and... um to start them thinking about what the service is going to look like. Cause frankly, I, I, I just, i got so much out of interacting with, I don't remember. I must've had an O four, but I seem to always remember it was O threes and O fives, the occasional O six, but like the military faculty in the classroom, I could not tell you who my TAC officers were. Right. But I, I just took so much away from just the modeling that was done in our classrooms as cadets and like, don't sell it short right? Everything that you do in front of them, they're paying attention to, right? And to some extent, I think back to, um, my time on the submarine where it's, you know, the enlisted guys can smell a phony a mile away and so can midshipmen. And of course, so can cadets, right? And so, you know, you may have had their down day, uh, you know, like, oh, this didn't really go very well or whatever, um, with what I'm trying to teach them. But I've kind of learned a little bit that... And maybe it's my selective amnesia, right? Because I'm actually pretty good at just kind of forgetting things. But, you know, like you can only hold your own pity party for, like, one night. That's kind of my rule. And the next morning, you put your heart back on your sleeve, and you lead with your chin, and you go do it again. And, like, people react to that. People say, like, oh, you're the genuine article. You're not somebody different. You know, when I call you at night with a question, then you're up there at the front of the classroom. And... That's really important to my success, I think. I I don't know, I probably, so I don't know that other instructors do this, but I I spend 15 minutes with every student, every term at the start, just talk about stuff. Just talk, you know, sports teams and where's home and where are you coming from and why'd you choose this major and all of that. And I don't know how folks are successful that don't do that. You know, clearly I found that that's critical to getting some basis to interact with the students on, And that's coming at the expense of something else, but I think it's super important. You know, back to the, you know, is that midshipman who's in front of you who needs help the most important and urgent thing? Yes. But again, you know, can that crowd out other priorities? Yes. And I need to work on that. Um, I don't find that it's like they're kind of like if you remember back to your cadet time, at least when you weren't like dead on your feet as a plebe, like you are actively wiring neurons in your developing brain. You are a sponge. And, like, I don't find it too hard to try to find the synapses to stimulate to, to get them to go, like, oh, yeah, no, I get this, and, or, or I'm really struggling with this, but I see why it's important, or I'm really excited about getting out in the fleet and leading sailors. And that's where I see that the, the kind of permanent professor job. You know, you have all these folks rotating through. They're great instructors. They don't get afforded the amount of time I have as far as getting good you know, and hopefully, you know, seeing beyond the, the trees um, that I think that sort of stuff is really important as far as being, uh, you know, kind of a master practitioner in the classroom, especially with this, you know, these are not just Joe Schmoe undergrads. These are future, future leaders for our country and our Navy
1: and Marine Corps. Definitely. Yeah. Um, being in Star is tough. Um, it's not for the center of mass. It's, it's that top 10% that really push you to, to challenge them and make them better that, um, it's really tough for you because it keeps you on your toes.
0: And, and frankly, you know, um, I like to draw a Venn diagram where I have, you know, the, the midshipmen who are going to put in the effort and the midshipmen who struggle with the material. And like if you struggle with the material but you put in the effort, like I, I am – that's exactly what I – you know, it's almost like triage. That's exactly what I'm here for. It's like, you're going to meet me more than halfway? Let's go. You know, there are some kids uh, who don't wrestle with the material very much. They're high flyers and whatever. Like, okay, great. Like, hopefully you're getting something out of my song and dance, but, like, you're not where I'm making my biggest impact. And, of course, you get really disappointed when there's mids who just will not apply themselves. That's pretty few and far between. But, of course, they're also, you know, you remember your cadet career. You're spread like peanut butter, uh, you know, a millimeter thick. And so how much of your attention can I really command? But it's the mids who seek out that help, who really say, like, self-identify. I need help. I'm struggling with this. Can we work on X? That's just super. That just lights you up as an instructor, and it's like, no, no, this is the most important and urgent thing on my plate right now. Let's, let's go. And it, and it keeps you a little bit um, fresher. And as you said, right, like, you may be a high flyer who's, like, working at a level beyond where I can steer the class, and that's really exciting, too, um, it's harder to manage, you're right, uh, because I don't want to derail the whole class, but it's also really valuable to not turn off the the opportunity for learning at that end as well. You know, like how do you build that into a curriculum where you're stretching, trying to stretch everybody? Um, I can't claim that I do it you know, perfectly or well, uh, but I do think it's a priority. that you know, Nobody thinks it's a waste of their time to be in class, even if they haven't seen the material before, but it's like, if you could just learn from the book, well, hopefully you take something else beyond, um, just the material content.
1: As we're wrapping this up, um, would you have any closing comments about your experience at West Point and your decision to go to the Navy?
0: Now, looking back, I mean, I, I have, I've caught so many breaks. I could not have planned it any better. Uh, and frankly, you know, a lot of folks ask me about, you know, I had an appointment and a nomination and a medical waiver to come to Navy a year earlier and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have traded what I did for, for anything, right? Like an extra year of pay or an, uh, retiring a year earlier. No way. Um, there's something about the secret sauce at West Point, And I really can't quite put my finger on it. There's an earnestness. There's a, there's a, a lack of cynicism, at least broadly amongst the cadets. Certainly, I get a little hit of that every time we got exchange cadets coming through here, and that just really buoys me that there. Even if I can't quantify exactly what the impressions were, you know that that time really formulated how I approach things, and it may have taken me a decade to kind of put it all together and see where it did, but it still was there. It was like now in my DNA because of our background, you know, because of the experiences we had in our In our four years on the Hudson. Um, I think I've talked just about everything I had, you know, like in the profound things I wanted to say. But the big takeaway, if you look at my career is, is make them tell, you no at least twice, you know, make them tell, you no about a medical waiver. Make the, you know, ask, ask nicely to go into the Navy, ask nicely to do something other than submarines and nuclear power. And then, uh, I guess, get a black mark on your record so that you can go do what you would really love to do, which is go teach. Awesome. Hey, thank you very much, John. Joe, this has been a blast, uh, and and what a gift to the class. Uh, I just, I cherish, and maybe even more than folks who've been in the army and have seen your, our classmates. I've been so out of the loop that this is this is like a a, a reset with the class. I I missed our twentieth, and I was so angry about it because i was planning to go and it was delta wave and i've got some reasons i can't come for that you know and i was just i was i miss that connection in that network and i feel like this is such a value add to that uh and getting to hear the experiences and amazing things that our classmates are doing so i thank you for the project and i'm just delighted to be uh contributing a small part to it
1: definitely thank you very much john excellent thanks joe Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.